look great. Uh, love the scarf. Is that the scarf that finally came in? It's one of them. This is something called a pre-wrap, which is really incredible. It's like already sewn into this wrap, and it has an elastic headband, so I can just put it on. That's neat. It's nice. Any way that you can get a little bit closer to your microphone, I want to hear more of that. I'm, I'm t- eating it. Okay, great. Great. Keep eating it. That's perfect. <laughs> Rubber baby bumper bunkers. Is this the first time you've seen my... Any other part of the house? Yeah. Besides my, like, bedroom wall? Or, like, sometimes when you're at this house. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sitting in a rocking chair right now. I feel like... <laughs> Do you remember our first failed messiah? Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs> Today on Hi, How Are You, Home Companion. Welcome to Hi, How Are You, where all the men are women and all the <laughs> women are good looking. <laughs> I feel like we're, it's slowly degenerating into like a nautical accent. Yeah. Well, let's just go into it, I guess. Hi. I mean, are we doing How Are You stuff or are we just introducing you want to banter? It's uh, a long episode already. It's a long episode. Know. Let's not banter. Okay. No banter today, listeners. We're not going to banter because you're going to get a lot of banter in the upcoming hour and a half, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's coming up in the next hour and a half, Michael? Well, this is going to be the first episode in our, I believe, three-part series on Sabatai Svi. You listeners will have the pleasure, the joy of listening to me interview the erudite the wise, <laughs> the weaver of stories, Sam Biagetti, mm-hmm. historian, mm-hmm. friend of the pod. Yeah. Coming soon to a scruff near you. He's going to give us kind of the straight history. The straight dope. On Sabotai, what happened, why it happened, who he was. After that, episode two, which you're going to hear next week, we're all going to get together, Hava, Sam, and myself. We're going to discuss the religious implications of this history. I just had a vivid daydream of like, Shabbatite Svi and Nathan of Gaza as like Pinky and the Brain. It kind of is. What are we going to do tonight, Nathan? The same thing we do every night, Shabbatai. Try to redeem the world. That's very accurate, too. <laughs> I know, right? I wish we, if you're an animator, <laughs> animate that for me. I'm really bad at making visual memes. Like, I'm good at making jokes on Twitter, but I haven't mastered like producing original images. That would be a good one. You mean like making the actual image? And then adding yeah, text to it? exactly. I wonder if I can. What are we going to do today, brain? Can we get that in a two panel? I like it. You're like, oh, can I get the half <laughs> quarter pound of Swiss? And uh, can I get a meme, a four panel meme featuring a dinosaur, a, uh, a beach ball, <laughs> and a mock and David? <laughs> yeah. Let's finish wrapping this. Yeah, let's finish having this conversation. Without further ado, I guess. Yeah, without further ado, listeners, please enjoy. I think this is our best series ever, and I'm really excited to hear what you think of it. Enjoy, listeners. Can you just talk regularly again? To sit in solemn silence on a dull, dark dock, <laughs> awaiting the sensation of a short, sharp shock. All right. All right, Samuel. Here we are at our little dining room. Well, really, it's the living room. We're at a living room table. The everything room. We have a beautiful patterned tablecloth. Yeah, kind of regionally appropriate. It's sort of like vaguely Balkan, oh, okay. which is about right for this topic. 
welcome listeners of both Hi, How Are You and Historian Splaining. Is that right, Sam? This is a crossover app. Yes, major crossover event. Wow. So the streams are being crossed right now (laughs) for you listeners. For those of you who don't know about Sam Biagetti, he is a historian. He has a podcast called Historian Splaining. If you've listened to Hi, How Are You before, you maybe will recognize his voice as our historian in residence. Listeners of Historian Splaining, perhaps you might recognize my voice from earlier episodes many yeah. years ago when I interviewed Sam about both historical topics and hot issues. And today is the first day that we do a truly crossover episode that will be available to listeners, and we're going to be covering a very special topic. Yeah, it's a perfect crossover topic. A major and often misunderstood, you could even say mysterious, historical episode, which played an important part in the development of Judaism and Jewish life in the early modern world. We're going to be talking about the historical figure Sabbatite Sevi and the movement that came up around him in the 1600s. Sabbatai is a very interesting historical and religious puzzle that a lot of Jews don't like talking about or don't even know about. There's some reasons why he's a bit of a skeleton in the closet. The movement surrounding him was associated with breaking commandments and breaking taboos in some cases. There was a scandalous incident where he converted to Islam, even though he was perceived to be this messianic figure for the Jews. Despite that, he was still very popular even after the conversion and before the conversion. To modern Jews, it's hard to understand what happened why it happened, and to see how it fits into the larger Jewish narrative of what rabbinical Judaism is and how it's evolved since the destruction of the Second Temple. I wanted to bring Sam onto the show and ask him basically to tell us what the hell happened. (laughs) Which is my favorite part. I think the first question I want to start with is the historical context. These things don't just pop out out of nowhere. How did it come to be that the environment was set for Sabbatai to take the stage and become this flashpoint. I mean, that's a huge, broad subject. To give a little basic context, the Jewish people in the 15 and 1600s were living in a whole constellation of scattered communities, mainly in towns and cities, all around the Middle East, North Africa, Persia, Eastern Europe, and Western Europe. And some even at this point were going to the Americas as well. So they were in a what we call a diaspora. Jews had been living in this diaspora sort of situation since really the second century, since the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the mass expulsions of Jews out of Palestine. So that was not new. But there had been sort of ups and downs, changes and fluctuations in sort of diasporic Jewish life. There had been some times and places where Jews were able to live in relative peace and security. Some had achieved some degree of prosperity or prominence. A big example of that is medieval Spain under the Islamic Emirate of Spain. And there were some other places too, Venice, the Rhineland, and some places in North Africa, Morocco. But in the 1600s, things were looking more grim than they had at various times before. So there had been sort of, you could say, cascading disasters for different 
groups of Jews all around the world. The big one that sort of forms the kind of looming factor in the background of the whole movement was the expulsion of Jews from Spain. Once the Reconquista was completed and Christian powers had taken over all of Spain and Portugal, they then expelled the Jews that were still living there. So this sort of remaining holdout where Jews had been able to live in greater freedom and well-being was destroyed. And you had this Sephardic diaspora, which people have sometimes called a diaspora within a diaspora, a sort of second scattering of Jews out of Spain and Portugal. And then there were also waves of persecution, of increasing restriction on the activities of Jews in some Islamic societies, in places like Yemen and Morocco. Things were getting worse than they had been centuries before, and there was increasing poverty. People were leaving, looking for different places to go where they could survive. In case anyone isn't aware, sort of the two big main groups of Jews in Europe were the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi. And the Sephardic is the name for Jews in Spain or those who left Spain. So they are now dispersed all around the Mediterranean world, the Middle East, Western Europe, even some go to the Netherlands, England. And the other group is Ashkenazi, which originally means German, but it was sort of the broad name for all these Jews in Central and Eastern Europe, in countries like Germany, Poland, Hungary. The largest number were in Poland. And in 1648, the Cossacks, who are this kind of strange sort of like isolate ethnic group that served as cavalry and kind of enforcers for the imperial powers in Eastern Europe. They rose up in rebellion against the kingdom of Poland. Their leader sent them on a campaign of attacks and massacres on the Jews in Poland. So there was this huge wave of killing and expulsions of Jews in Poland from 1648 to 50. So you get another kind of diaspora within a diaspora with these Polish Jews seeking refuge in various places. By the 1650s, things are looking really, really rough for Jews, basically all around the Jewish world. So from the 1500s to the mid-1600s, we have basically three tragedies. We have the expulsion of Portuguese and Spanish Jews. Mm -hmm. We have more pogroms happening to Ashkenazi Jews and more restrictions placed on Jews in Islamic areas. In some Islamic countries too, yeah. Is that just like an unfortunate coincidence? Are they connected in any way? Well, I think most present-day historians would say, yes, they are connected. And they're connected in a way that people didn't really realize and take stock of until more recent years, where scholars increasingly agree that there was a general crisis of the 17th century, where there was this period of sort of intractable religious conflict, most of which was Catholic versus Protestant, but also Christian versus Muslim, Shia versus Sunni, and that this probably was ultimately rooted in the climate. There was a little ice age, as we call it, in the 17th century, which got worse in the mid-1600s. And you had crop failures, food shortages, bread riots. You had towns and cities being abandoned because of the severe winters and the floods that resulted from the snows and ice. So it was a time of strain. It was a time when there were a lot of refugees, a lot of discontented people, a lot of instability. And there were wars going on. There was the War of the Fronde in France, the English Civil War, the Thirty Years' War. So this was a time of instability and violence in general, certainly in Europe, and also to a significant degree in other places as well. For example, the collapse of the Ming Dynasty in China. So this kind of 
internecine fighting and refugee crises were definitely widespread in the 17th century, and probably we're seeing how this was coming to bear on Jews. Side question, do you think it was in some ways easier to be a Jew in the high Middle Ages, 1300s, 1400s, than it was to be a Jew in the 1500s and 1600s because of these events that you were just describing? Well, I mean, it's impossible to generalize because every society is different, you know, and there were Jewish communities in different countries in India and China, in Ethiopia, that were all having different experiences. But if you're talking about Europe, It certainly seems like there were times like the 11th century (laughs) when it was looking a bit brighter, (laughs) when things seemed to be on a better path. And those things kind of gradually collapsed or came under attack between the 1100s and the 1600s. And the 1600s were, I think you can basically say on balance, they were worse But, you know, it's just a very rough generalization. And there was certainly an increasing sense of crisis. You can see that in some of the religious teachings. You can see that in some episodes where some kind of minor preacher figures in Europe came to be seen by some people as messiahs. Sabbatite Zvi was not the first. There were forerunners, although he was by far the biggest and most impactful just by orders of magnitude. But there were moments in Poland and Hungary where sometimes communities rallied around this or that individual and proclaimed them as a messiah. It just never caught on for very long or got very far. So we have people trying to make sense of these crises that are happening around them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they gravitate towards like a local messianic kind of figure and Mm -hmm. they follow them. How does Jewish theology play into it? What's the role of Kabbalah? Does Kabbalah influence how people are thinking about what's going on around them? How are they making sense of these traumas that are happening to them? Yeah, it definitely has an effect. Some things that I learned, I was sort of vaguely aware of, but I learned a lot more in reading about Sabbatite Zvi, is that the notion of a messiah, you know, messiah or moshiach means the anointed one, the idea of a leader of the Jews who is backed and anointed by God, who will redeem the Jews from exile and reestablish the freedom of the Jews in a Jewish kingdom. That's a very old idea. You know, it goes back at least to Isaiah. So it goes all the way back into biblical times. And it had always been around. And it was, to a large degree, a popular idea. It was something that certain rabbis and scholars would de-emphasize or downplay. But the sort of ordinary Jewish folk really embraced this idea that the Messiah is going to come, the prophet Elijah will appear and herald the coming of the Messiah. So that was around for a long time. But what changed is that basically starting in the 1400s, people start to think about the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom, the sort of new Jewish kingdom that the Messiah will establish. They start to think of it in more spiritual and mystical terms than they had before. So if you look at, say, for example, Maimonides, this, you know, 12th century, very learned scholar, a student of Aristotle, he talked about the Messiah, and it's not metaphysical or mystical at all. He just says, well, at some point there will be a leader and he'll successfully defeat the enemies of the Jews and give us back a kingdom and everything will be great. Things will basically continue on as before. We'll keep observing the Torah and the mitzvot and it'll just be like better. (laughs) Like Jewish life will continue, but better. I want to sign up for that. That sounds nice. Yeah. But 
Over the course of the 14-1500s, Kabbalah becomes more and more popular. Kabbalah is a Jewish mystical tradition. It's roughly similar to Neoplatonic mystical thought or Gnostic mystical thought that you can see in different religions going back to the ancient world. So it was not totally new, but it gains a kind of new prestige in like the 12 and 1300s, mainly in Spain and France, which is right where you have these Jewish communities that had been doing pretty well, but now are coming under attack and are losing ground. So that starts as early as the 1200s and 1300s. Yes. Well, and the Zohar is the kind of big foundational book of Kabbalah, although it's only the beginning, right? There are many, many more developments and schools of thought that evolve over the centuries. But the Zohar is this, you know, so-called book of enlightenment that kind of lays the groundwork for Kabbalistic, mystical interpretations of the Torah, the idea that there are hidden spiritual meanings in the Torah that you have to decode through meditation or through numerology, that comes up around the time when the Zohar is written in the 1200s. It's clear that it was penned by a rabbi in Spain named Moses de Leon, but he sort of backdated it and wrote it in an old-fashioned Aramaic style to make it seem even more ancient. And the Zohar gained circulation, it gained popularity. Kind of learned men, mainly, started to get more and more into Kabbalah and into this mystical understanding of the Torah through the 12, 13, 1400s. Then you get the expulsion from Spain. And now you have all these Jews who have been exposed to Kabbalah and the Zohar and have thought about this, these mystical ideas, and they get scattered all around and show up in all these different Jewish communities all around Europe, the Mediterranean, the Middle East. So it kind of takes off. People really embrace Kabbalah as a way of understanding what Jews were going through and to say, well, it's all part of this kind of spiritual progress that we have to go through these scatterings and that our world as we know it has to be broken apart. And Kabbalah, this mystical reading and meditation, is how we piece the world back together. And this is where you get this idea of tikkun, repair, reassemblage. And the idea is that through this mystical study and through mystical spiritual development, Jews will put the world back into right order, will bring peace and will regain their kingdom and the temple, right? The ultimate sort of crowning achievement is we will rebuild the temple. Do you think that Kabbalah, part of the reason why it initially started was as a response to the beginnings of a crisis of Jews not being accepted in in Spain and Portugal, and then it grew even more because of the expulsion from Spain and then the other tragedies we talked about? Yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty clear there's a close correspondence there. If you think about rabbinic Judaism, the sort of publicly practiced, small-o, orthodox, mainstream Judaism of this time, it didn't really offer answers to, like, why do we keep getting destroyed? <laughs> you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't persuasive in explaining to people, if we are faithful Jews and we're loyal to the covenant, why do we keep getting crushed? And why do things get worse? If you look at things through this very spiritual and mystical lens, it becomes possible to say, well, maybe these losses and these sufferings are leading towards some sort of greater growth, and that even as we lose materially or politically, 
we are still progressing spiritually, and that is what's going to redeem us, right? And, and that's how we can still look forward to this future redemption. So I read Gershom Sholem's book and some of his articles and comments about Sabbatai Tzvi and also about Kabbalah and how Kabbalah kind of paved the way for the Sabbatai Tzvi movement. This really crucial central point he wants to get across is that this hope for a Messiah, a new kingdom, a new temple could be spiritualized. You could more and more think of it as something that Jews could work towards through their mystical and spiritual reflections, right? It's kind of like do the work on yourself and then the world will follow. The redemption of the Jews in the actual political world will follow from that. So that's why the notion of the Messiah really evolved and changed. That was already well underway by the 1500s. And he argues that Svat, the city in northern Palestine, became the big center, the sort of mecca of Kabbalistic Judaism, where all of these sages and mystics and preachers would go and share and develop these ideas, and then they would radiate back out. So you might have folks coming into Tzvat from Germany or from Bulgaria or from Yemen, and they would share in this kind of mystical excitement of Tzvat, and then they'd go back to where they came from and bring these ideas back. And more and more Judaism all throughout the diaspora was infused with this kind of Kabbalistic mystical excitement. Eventually, the role of the Messiah changed. And this is an important thing that he really emphasizes too. Previously, people would have said, well, you know, when things are bad, the Messiah will show up and he'll fix it, right? The Messiah will be the one who will right the wrongs and win battles and gain rulership and put the world to right and reestablish justice and peace. Well, by 1600 or so, people were thinking of it more the opposite way, that Jews, by practicing Kabbalah and by practicing Judaism with this spiritual dimension were going to accomplish most of the redemption themselves, that it was about this piety and this mystical learning that would get you most of the way there. And the Messiah was almost just like a minor footnote or just a minor, not quite an afterthought, but just like the completion, the final completing note will be, oh yes, and then there will be a Messiah. Is the Messiah kind of like the reward or, or sort of yeah. like the mark of, it's the A that you get on your paper after doing the work? Right, right. It's more like the blue ribbon you get for being good spiritual Jews. The Messiah is like a large pumpkin that won like the <laughs> Iowa State Fair or something like that. Or it's the ribbon that you get. It's more like the Jewish people. Yeah, the Jewish people in Israel are the large pumpkin, are the prize-winning pumpkin. And then the Messiah is just like, oh, you did it, guys. We made it to the Messianic age. Now everything will be great. But increasingly, it's the spiritual redemption that matters even more than the worldly political redemption. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So we have this situation. We have people dealing with existential crises, trauma, trying to make sense of their history from the last few generations, being exposed to Kabbalah, the idea that they can participate in the coming of a better time. How does sabotage this particular rabbi in a particular place come to be such a flashpoint? It was a convergence of circumstances and personalities that can seem really bizarre if you don't understand how those things go together. What is it about Sabbatai? What happens specifically with him? Should I explain a bit who is Sabbatai Tzvi? Where does that come from? Yeah, yeah. Where does he come from? So he was born and raised in Smyrna, 
which is a small city, a port city on the Aegean Sea in what's now Turkey. So that was in the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire at this point in the 1600s is basically at the height of its power. It's a really major imperial power controlling the Balkans, a big chunk of Eastern Europe, Greece, Turkey, Palestine, Egypt, most of North Africa, and Mesopotamia, all the way over to Persia. It's a huge, sprawling empire. It's a very multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-faith empire. It is an Islamic empire, but it also permits and protects the practice of Christianity and Judaism as well. So there are pretty big Christian and Jewish populations. And Sabatite Zvi, he's a rabbi who's born and raised in Smyrna, in this city that's largely Turkish and Muslim, but has Jewish and Christian communities as well. We don't know a whole lot about his background. People have sort of thrown around, oh, he was Sephardic, oh, he was Romaniote. We really don't know. But the name Tzvi is Ashkenazi. So most likely, at least from his father's side, he was an Ashkenazi Jew. His father was kind of a minor merchant and like mercantile representative who managed trade between European merchants and Smyrna, including for an English trading house. So there may have been a little contact or awareness in his life with English merchants. But basically, he was surrounded by mainly Jews and Muslims who largely spoke Turkish and Greek. He had a certain kind of standard rabbinic education. He wasn't considered a great rabbinic scholar. He never had a congregation, but he learned enough to be ordained as a rabbi. And he was a very odd fellow. In some ways, he was regarded as kind of the town freak, which is what often happens with people who become, you know, visionaries and religious leaders. They go through a period where they're just seen as kind of an oddball, maybe a fool, who occasionally might have some kind of insights. And he was psychologically tormented. He had tremendous emotional ups and downs. Gershom Sholem argues that he was bipolar, which, you know, we can't know because no doctor ever examined his mental health. So we can't know, but it certainly seems very likely based on what was written about him, that he was bipolar. And he would go through periods of excitement when he believed he was having mystical insights. And when he would worship openly and extravagantly, he loved to pray and sing and dance in his worship. He would walk around outside, worship and pray and sing around the woods, around the city. He would go bathe in the ocean. And he saw this as kind of like going to the mikvah as, as a kind of ritual purification. He attracted some interest, and apparently he had a few friends who kind of gathered around him and wanted to know what his beliefs and his ideas were and were kind of impressed by his passion, right? And then he would also go through periods of depression where he would isolate himself, speak to no one, often fast, and believed that he was being tormented either by God or by evil spirits. And he would kind of fluctuate between these different stages of, you know, high energy, low, and in between. And probably because he was so tormented and so agitated, he was never able to, like, sit down and say, I'm going to teach at a yeshiva. Or, like, <laughs> he, was, he was restless and he traveled around. So probably starting in his 20s, he started to go maybe seeking spiritual insight or seeking some kind of peace. And he went several times to Egypt. He went to Palestine. He would visit Jewish teachers or prominent wealthy Jews who would patronize and shelter kind of uh, spiritual teachers of various sorts, right? And this whole world was just steeped in Kabbalah. One of the things that's sort of odd about Tzvi that Gershom Sholem points out is that he certainly studied Kabbalah and took it seriously, mainly the Zohar, but he really didn't 
care about or pay much attention to the more recent, newer developments in Kabbalah, particularly the Isaac Luria school, which had come out of Sfat and was hugely popular in the Jewish world at this time. For whatever reason, he just didn't find it particularly appealing or important to him. And he focused more on the Zohar and very early Kabbalah. He went for a time to Jerusalem, which was normal for Jewish spiritual seekers. He went to Jerusalem. He maybe kind of studied informally for a while there. But he made an impression on some people because of his kind of passion and his ascetic piety, his belief in wearing simple clothes, eating very little, going on periods of fasting, going on spiritual pilgrimages. So he was seen by some people as a holy man, and he was appointed for a time to act as an emissary representing the Jewish group in Jerusalem, which was very poor. There was not much way to make money in Jerusalem. So you had this group of a thousand or so Jews who constantly needed donations and alms to support their life and their study in Jerusalem. And they would send out these emissaries around the Jewish world to look for support and raise money. They appointed Sabatai Tzvi, particularly to go back to Egypt again and seek support among the kind of well-to-do Jews in Egypt for their co-religionists in Jerusalem. It seems it was at this time when he was in Jerusalem and was living sort of in the house of a wealthy patron named Raphael, he learned about a Kabbalistic, you could say, wise man or preacher or prophet who was in Gaza. So Gaza was another smaller, pretty poor town in Palestine with a small, fairly poor Jewish group. But their big asset was they had this young man, a young rabbi named Benjamin Nathan Ashkenazi, who also was an Ashkenazi kind of mystical teacher who had gone down to Palestine and was now in Gaza. Nathan was believed to have extraordinary mystical insight, and he could speak with a person who was troubled and sort of diagnose, almost like a doctor, could diagnose what was wrong with them spiritually, whether they had committed some sin or they had some destiny that they didn't understand. He would prescribe to them tikkun. He would give them things to do to sort of resolve this spiritual turmoil and in a way you could say kind of purify themselves. And tikkun is the word that you mentioned earlier that is related to this larger Jewish Kabbalistic project of spiritually reassembling a holier world that will bring us the blue ribbon of the Messiah. Right, right. So Nathan believes that he can tell people what tikkun they can do individually for themselves on their own individual level. But it was necessarily understood, like you're saying, as part of this bigger picture of the Jewish people collectively redeeming themselves and preparing the way for the Messiah. This is what Nathan is doing, and Sabbatai Tzvi goes to Nathan. He's exactly the sort of person who would want to talk to Nathan of Gaza. It seems, you know, the sources are ambiguous here, but it seems like up to this point, Sabbatai Tzvi had never said and never suggested in any direct way that he was the Messiah. Maybe the thought came to him and he hinted at it to a couple of his friends, but it was not a common notion. He never said it openly or in any definitive way. It's not the reason why he went to Nathan. And he did not say this to Nathan. He went to Nathan and he said, I'm a troubled soul. I do weird things. When I'm in my states of excitement and illumination, I say strange things. I do things that are forbidden. And one thing he had done was sometimes in his states of excitement, he would go into synagogues and he would utter the ineffable name, right? Which is what we call the tetragrammaton, the sort of the name of God that is not to be spoken. 
He had done this, and this was one of the weird things he had done in his history that confused even himself. He didn't understand why these impulses came to him, and he went to Nathan of Gaza and said, I don't understand why I feel this way or why I do these weird things. And Nathan was profoundly impressed with Sabatai, and apparently he went into kind of a deep trance state, a sort of half-sleeping state, which sometimes, you know, Kabbalistic preachers would do, a sort of mystical trance. And he began to say, Sabbatai Tzvi is the Messiah. And he said that he had visions where his soul went up into paradise, into the celestial paradise, and he saw the throne with Sabbatai on it. And angels told him, this is the Redeemer. Wow. There's no reason for us to believe that Nathan of Gaza wasn't sincere in this proposition that he was making. All indications are that he was sincere. You know, we can't say for certain exactly why did Nathan come to this conclusion. And if he really had these visions, why did he? And then there's the question of when he turned to his friends and followers in Gaza and proclaimed Sabbatai is the Messiah, they all believed him. In Gaza, at least, there was like no doubt. Like everybody was on board. This is for real. This is the Messiah. And we have to act accordingly. Why is that exactly? Well, you have to remember, at this point, people had shifted their understanding of what the Messiah would be to the point that his political and military role was almost unimportant. People more and more understood the Messiah is a spiritual figure who is somehow going to cleanse and free the Jewish people from evil forces, whether that's sin or impurity or the Gentiles or oppression or persecution. He's, he's a spiritual vehicle of redemption. And Sabbatai, in that way, in that sense, he kind of fit the bill. He was this tormented person who believed that there were evil forces kind of entrapping him spiritually, but that he somehow could redeem himself and free himself, and that his weird actions, his bizarre, his sort of made-up prayers, his weird dances, his bathing in the sea, these strange actions had something to do with that kind of spiritual quest. When Nathan proclaims him, he sort of ushers Sabbatai into the synagogue in Gaza, and Sabbatai immediately kind of jumps into the role. It like fits for him. It's because, it seems it's because Sabbatai loved ceremony, he loved ritual, he loved music. He was kind of an impresario. He loved to put on an exciting, inspiring show. And so he goes into the synagogue and he starts performing these amazing new songs and prayers, and he starts introducing innovations. He loves to kind of fiddle with the worship service and the liturgy in ways that are symbolically suggestive in ways that he himself probably doesn't even realize. But he does things like he says, okay, well, it's a Shabbat service. We're going to pronounce the priestly blessing, and it will not be done just by Kohanim, by members of the priestly caste or priestly tribe. Also, three non-priestly Israelites should come up and perform the blessing as well. Oh, wow. So that would be kind of a little bit scandalous, maybe? Yeah, well, it's starting to kind of push or break taboos in ways that are intriguing, that people talk about. What does this mean? And he's constantly hinting that barriers need to be broken down. So maybe in the beginning, it's this barrier between priestly and non-priestly Jews, right? And he's sort of suggesting, sending this subtle hint that we're entering a new dispensation. The world is changing, and the old rules no longer apply. And things that were forbidden are now not only permitted, but commanded, right? It's this 
total reversal. And that's a crucial thing to understand about Sabatai, is he didn't run around just saying, all the rules are out the window, let's do whatever we feel like. He very intentionally, or in a very insightful way, would pick out specific actions that had been taboo and commanded they must be done. Because now everything has taken on a kind of new meaning. The redemption is at hand, it's happening, and everything is being turned upside down. So this is all happening in Palestine, in Gaza. Right, so it begins in Gaza, and very quickly the word gets to these other Jewish communities in Palestine and Syria. Because Nathan has a wide-ranging reputation. So when people say, Nathan has proclaimed a Messiah, the Messiah has gone into the synagogue and has done these bizarre, intriguing things, it spreads the word and it seems, it's hard to say, but a large portion of the Jews in Palestine and Syria get on board right away. And he's invited to Jerusalem. He goes and he preaches in Jerusalem. And then he sort of goes on a progression from town to town. He goes up to Aleppo in Syria. He being Nathan of Gaza or Sabbatai? Sabbatai Tzvi. Nathan also travels around some, but not as much. He mostly stays in Gaza. Basically, as he's going through these towns, he gets different reactions in different places. And in some places, like apparently in Aleppo, the Jewish community is just like, great, we love it. We got the Messiah. This is what we wanted. And they run with it. In Jerusalem, there's more division. And in Jerusalem, you have a lot of rabbis, you know, a lot of scholars who are really steeped in Talmud. They're much more resistant and are kind of alarmed. Like, how do we know this is a real Messiah? He doesn't look and act like a Messiah. He's like doing this weird stuff. He's like flighty. We don't get it. He's not a real learned scholar like us. And he's not performing miracles. You know, where are the signs from heaven and the miracles showing that this is the real Messiah? So the rabbinate in Jerusalem banishes him and says, we don't believe you. We think you're a fake and you're not allowed in Jerusalem. But in other towns and cities, he's totally welcomed. I can understand why to rabbis, Sabbatai might be a threat Mm -hmm. if the laws are going to change and be overturned and things are going to be different, then the authority of the rabbis and their knowledge of the laws is going to come into question. So I understand why that group of rabbis would reject him in Jerusalem, but why would rabbis in other places welcome it and not be threatened by it? There are several reasons. I mean, there are all kinds of different fault lines that show up when people respond to Sabbatai and have to judge. Some say, well, I'm going to wait and see. Some don't take a side and just say, I don't know. I'm just going to wait and see. If angels show up, if the sky opens up and angels come down, I'll believe it. But I'm going to wait. People who reject it are in a minority. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. That the, the large majority of Jews all around the world, when they find out about Sabbatai, embrace him. That is, that is just the fact. <laughs> in- including rabbis. Including many rabbis. For one thing, if you were more steeped in Kabbalah, it was more likely that you would believe that Sabbatai was the Messiah because you would make sense of it. You would say he's experiencing this spiritual warfare in himself. He's troubled, he's tormented, and it it made a lot of sense. Even learned scholars, it made a, a lot of sense to many people to think that the Messiah is one who suffers and one who suffers internally, spiritually, as the Jewish people suffer. 
He's kind of the symbol of what the Jews are going through. So that makes a lot of sense. If you're more steeped in Kabbalah, you're more likely to embrace him. If you're more desperate, you're more likely to embrace him. If you're just like, oh, everything sucks. <laughs> the world is going down the tubes. We have to have a Messiah. Then, you know, you could give in to a certain degree of wishful thinking of like, all right, you say there's a Messiah, great. And you, you would go with it. Another factor is just the people around you. It seems that... By and large, the sort of ordinary Jews, Jews who did not have Talmudic education, who were more poor, just kind of, you know, shopkeepers, minor artisans, servants, they were the quickest and the most enthusiastic to embrace this messianic movement. And so if you were in a town or a city with thousands of Jews and a lot of them were poor and they immediately were like, guess what, guys, we're changing the liturgy. The Messiah has come. He's on his way. And he says that now we're going to do the priestly blessing. And he says that now we're going to have a feast instead of a fast. It was very difficult to stand against that. It was very difficult to be the odd man out. And there were some, there were, and you know, Sasportas was a, a rabbi who was from Morocco originally, but he lived in Germany. He sort of was very poor and he, he moved to Europe and settled in Hamburg. And he became kind of the leading opponent of Sabbateanism, the most, certainly the most outspoken. And, you know, he had his windows broken, you know, he was pelted, he was mocked, he was almost excommunicated. So he was canceled, basically. He was super canceled. And it was really a small minority that had to stand fast, and also some who were, who disbelieved, but kept it very private and under wraps. And were like, I'm not going to tell the mob that I don't believe in this Messiah. But it's very important, we shouldn't be too schematic here. You know, lots of rabbis, lots of learned scholars totally embraced and believed in Sabbatai as well. It really, in a sense, it makes more sense to look at who who wasn't, who resisted and disbelieved. And there were a small minority, a scattered small minority. They tended to be rabbis more than lay people. They tended more often to be wealthy than poor. And they tended more often to be Sephardic than Ashkenazi. Not universally, but that was kind of the general tendency. And so if you look at, you know, certain places where there were many rabbis and there were well-to-do people and they were more Sephardic, there was more likelihood you'd have a non-Sabbatean party there. I can understand from like a materialistic and power perspective why rabbis and wealthy people may represent more of a subset of the people who are not into Sabbatai. Mm -hmm. What do you think the Sephardic versus Ashkenazic thing is about? I don't know. I mean, I think there there's lots of ways you could unpack that. I mean, one is that even at this time, Sephardic people were generally regarded as having higher status than Ashkenazi. It was sort of more prestigious to be Sephardic than Ashkenazi. And so the Ashkenazim, you know, they, were, they tended to be more poor, less worldly. And also there had been that more recent fresh wave of really severe persecution in Poland by the Cossacks. Right, or the Spanish expulsion was a hundred years prior to this. More, Yeah, at this point, more than a hundred years in the okay. past. So those are all some reasons why it seems to have played out that way. But just to fill in a little more, Sabatai, he went from Syria to Turkey. He went back to his hometown in Smyrna. For a while, he was in a deep depression and isolated himself, even as there was a lot of buzz and intrigue about who is this man? Is he a messiah? What does this mean? And then it seems he went back into one of his enthusiastic states, and he went into the synagogues in Smyrna, including the Portuguese synagogue, which was like the more prestigious 
Sephardic synagogue. He and his followers apparently forcibly broke in. They went on to the bima. He took with him a book of the Torah, not a kosher Torah scroll. And he began reading from it, making proclamations, mystical pronouncements, and he changed the liturgy. From there, he sort of goes on this campaign of like religious reworking, doing things like publicly feasting on forbidden non-kosher fat. There are certain fats from certain parts of the body of an animal that are not kosher. And he would publicly eat them. And he created this new baracha where he would say, blessed are you, Adonai, who commands that which is forbidden, right? Whoa. <laughs> it's like, it's paradox. It's all paradox. It's, you know, what is, what is forbidden is now commanded. And he wasn't doing it in a hedonistic way. You know, he wasn't saying, like, I'm going to have an orgy. He was saying, I'm intentionally doing these things that appear pointless, but I'm doing them to make a statement that the laws have been turned upside down and we're in a new dispensation. And naturally, what flowed from that is eventually once the movement had spread and there were now followers receiving letters, receiving messages about the Messiah and about his commands all around, everywhere, Yemen, Egypt, Germany, Amsterdam, Italy, everywhere. Everybody was excited. Everybody was like, we're doing what Sabbatai says. We're changing the liturgy. The sort of big climax is he says, the fast days, these sort of days of penance where you mourn, for example, Tisha B'Av, right? Where the day of mourning commemorating the destruction of the temple. He says, this is no longer a day of fast and mourning. It's a day of celebration. We feast and we light candles. So it was this most direct, like symbolic violation of the old taboos. And why would you do that? Well, this message he keeps hinting at over and over again through all these weird symbolic acts is we're about to rebuild the temple. It's about to happen. And so Tisha B'Av, you no longer mourn because you've lost the temple. Now you celebrate because it's about to be regained. And he would do things like when he went into the synagogues in Smyrna, he would bring in loads of flowers and candies. And people would say, what is he doing? What does this mean? Why are you bringing flowers on the bima? People who were insightful could figure it out. They would puzzle it out. They'd say, this is symbolic of the offerings that we're going to bring to the temple. That's what's coming. That's the next step. So he builds up this tremendous excitement. Right. And everybody's into it. Every, you know, the the rabbis in Italy are sending out letters to all their contacts saying this is real. We have witnesses. He's the real Messiah. Nathan of Gaza is a true prophet. And it was hard to argue against that, too, because real respected rabbis had previously examined Nathan of Gaza and said he's legitimate. He's a real oh, prophet. Interesting. So it was very difficult to then go back and contradict that and say now he's wrong. You think there are probably some rabbis who thought Nathan of Gaza was a prophet, but then were thinking in the back of their head that this is jumping the shark a little bit? Something's gone wrong. Yeah, there was a lot of confusion and uncertainty. But probably just as many of those scholars who thought that it was also legit. Yes. Oh, absolutely. If you look just at the rabbinate, there was like the whole range of opinion. And, you know, it's impossible to quantify exactly, but it's reasonable to suppose that among the rabbinate, it might have been about a third were totally on board, a third were against it, and a third were uncertain and remained neutral. But it was it was a tremendous furor. And the, the ordinary people, it was just overwhelming embrace. This is it. The Messiah has come. Again, there were people, there were some skeptics saying, where are the miracles, right? I haven't seen any signs or miracles from heaven. I don't know this is real. But most people said, look at the weird things he's doing. 
there's a method to this madness. It was not just random crazy acts. There was a method to the madness. And this is where Sabatai was a genius, you know, whether consciously or not. He was a genius in that he understood how to send theological messages through actions, not through preaching and doctrine. That's what Nathan did. Nathan was the philosopher and the preacher. Sabatai figured out how to send these messages through acts that people could interpret. Besides people being excited and hearing about these acts that he's doing, were there lay people and rabbis actually out there trying to break commandments and do the Sabbatai thing on their own now that they're inspired by it? And are they going out and trying new things in public in the streets? No, in, in general, no. People follow Sabbatai's lead. And what that means is they perform these forbidden acts in ritualistic ways, whether at home or in the synagogue, as instructed by Sabbatai. The other thing that happens that fuels this whole movement is Nathan of Gaza starts to write up sort of booklets of penitential acts, things to do for tikkun, in order to be ritually pure and ready for the messianic age. These booklets, you know, they enjoin things like fast for a day, three days, six days, give away money. They get printed and circulated all around. And there's a huge kind of penitential awakening, as it's called. And this is another reason why some people embraced the movement who might not have otherwise, is they said, well, look, people are repenting of their sins. They're going to the mikvah. They're fasting. They're praying all day in the synagogue. They are giving money to charity. They're giving alms. This is good stuff. This is the sort of thing you want to see Jews doing anyway. And this is something a lot of Sabbateans said too is, hey guys, fine, you disbelieve, but don't, don't, can I say shit? (laughs) I mean, on my podcast, you can say shit. Right, right. Don't shit on this. We're doing the sort of good stuff you want us to do. And this is what we ought to be doing anyway. We ought to be living in this penitential way, repenting, looking for holiness. The downside was business massively shut down. You know, Jews, a lot of them are shopkeepers, merchants, and they're all saying, hey, Messiah's come. I'm selling my house. I'm giving my money away. I'm ready. This is it. This is the end. This is the redemption. So whole ports just shut down because the Jews are not trading and the stores are closed. The docks are closed. Things like come to a standstill. Thousands of Jews, thousands of Jews say, all right, the Messiah's come. Time to go to Palestine. Time to be there at hand, ready for this reestablishment of the kingdom. Jews were only a minority community in these places, but they were important in trade. This is part of why it attracted a lot of attention from Gentiles too. And there's a whole Gentile dimension to this movement that Gershom Sholem doesn't get into that much. It's like not his thing. (laughs) But people notice like, what's going on? The Jews are all wearing white and fasting and they're all in the synagogue all day and the stores are closed and I can't do business. Gentiles noticed this was happening, that something serious was happening among the Jews. Some of them, you know, ask and try to figure out what's going on. And, oh, there's a Messiah. What, who is this Messiah? What's happening? Some of the authorities were upset and were like, we can't have this. We can't have the Jews stopping business. We need them. We need, the, we need this for the economy. And they tried to kind of calm things down or hurry things up and somehow work out a deal of like, please still do business even though the Messiah's come. And some of them became intrigued and found out about it and began to believe. Whoa. Yeah, there were Gentiles. Some of these stories are very shaky. There's like, oh, well, you know, in Modena in Italy, some Frenchmen came because they heard about this Messiah. And once they knew the truth of it, 
they converted to Judaism. This probably happened in a few cases. We're like, all right, I, I, there's a Messiah. I guess Judaism is the true faith and became Sabbatean Jews. And some others were like, well, you know, I'm not going to go over and be Jewish, but maybe this is a real Messiah. Maybe the Jews are about to be redeemed. Maybe we need to be ready. Do you know if there was any response, official response from like the Catholic Church? I mean, there was talk of it among some Catholic clergy of like, oh, these Jews think their Messiah has come. We don't know. This must be some kind of imposture. This must be some kind of fakery. But they kind of monitored the situation. And it was tense. It was tense for a while in summer, early fall of 1666, when people really don't know, like, where is this all heading? (laughs) A lot of people, even Gentiles, are uncertain. It's like, is this a real Messiah? What does this mean? And there were some who thought, well, it's the second coming of Christ. And this is interesting. Some Gentiles started to write to each other and some publishers would collect the letters and reports about Sabbatai and print little pamphlets, you know, newsletters and pamphlets. The habit took hold of referring, Gentiles would refer to him as Yehoshua Helkam. Somehow this notion came up that his real name is not Sabbatai Tzvi. His real name is Yehoshua Helkam. Yehoshua means Joshua or Jesus. And Helkam means resurrected or come back from the dead. So it's pretty clearly implied. A lot of these Gentiles thought Sabbatai was the second coming of Christ and that the Jews were just wow. getting the news first. So this was this was all like in a furor, furor, like middle of 1666, people are just worked up in a lather. It's like hysteria, right? And Sabbatai is riding high. He's doing great. He goes to Constantinople among his supporters. The expectation is he's going to go to Constantinople and he's going to go right up to the Sultan and he's going to say, guess what? I'm in charge now. I'm the true king and all rulers will bow down before me. Uh, Yeah, okay, that seems pretty reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) That's a reasonable ask, right? Yeah. And probably that's what Sabatai himself was thinking. So he gets to Constantinople. The authorities know stuff is, shit is going down, right? They know this is an issue and they need to monitor this. So he lands on the quay and immediately is arrested, right? Turkish authorities are there ready. They arrest him. They take him briefly to a sort of a prison near the capital. And there are just crowds of Jews just like going wild, just like, it's the Messiah. We want to go see him. We want to give him gifts. We want to pray with him. So it's Beatlemania, basically. It's super Beatlemania of, of Jews and, <laughs> and some Gentiles. The imperial court says, all right, we can't have this. And they move him out to a fortress, a sort of fortified prison at Gallipoli down, you know, I don't know, 20 miles or so away from Constantinople on the Dardanelles. This is like a safe enough distance that they're like, all right, maybe he's not going to like cause a riot or a revolution. We'll just keep him there. We can't execute him because that will cause like a massive Jewish uprising and they'll just see him as a martyr. So they hold off and they say, keep him in the prison. And there was a custom in the Ottoman Empire. Prisoners can have visitors, right? <laughs> so they, so the, the prison keepers, the jail keepers say, if you come to Gallipoli, if you get here, you pay us a fee. You can go in and visit Sabatai. Thousands of people just line up. Boats are lined up down the shore of people ready to go in and see the Messiah and pray with him and sing with him. People are bringing him gifts. He's got lavish clothing and rich food and tapestries. He's like living it up in this prison cell in Gallipoli. 
I'm thinking like, what would Pontius Pilate do? That's the thing that yeah, comes to mind for me. It's like an impossible quandary for the Ottomans. They're like, what do we do with this guy? This is out of control. And he's in here in his prison cell and he's issuing orders. He's telling people, you're going to feast on the 18th of Tammuz and light 18 candles, and you're going to feast on Tisha B'Av and say this prayer. And everyone, you know, buy Nathan of Gaza's booklet and do do the penances. He's like, he's given orders from this prison, and it's just mushrooming. There are, Naturally, there are people at the time who are like, this doesn't seem good. The Messiah is in prison? But they stop and they say, well, hold on a second. There were heroes, Jewish patriarchs like Joseph, who were imprisoned and who were brilliant and had mystical insight, like interpreting Pharaoh's dream, even though he was in prison. And they say, well, maybe this is all part of the messianic journey, that he has to be imprisoned, he suffers, right? But he will triumph. So the the excitement is still around. It seems this continues till about... I believe, early September 1666. So it's been a few months now of this, like, massive messianic outbreak. A fellow goes to visit Sabatai, who is a kind of traveling apocalyptic preacher from Poland. Uh, Nehemiah. He was called, like, Rabbi Nehemiah. It's a great place to be an apocalyptic preacher from. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like you can totally see it. He has been traveling around preaching about a Messiah and apocalypse for some time. Sabatai knows this. He's heard of him. Some people said he even sent for him, asked Nehemiah to come visit. And so he goes to Gallipoli and he goes to see Sabatai and they argue. And Nehemiah says, hold on, if you look at these popular stories and these old books about the Messiah, they say that he's going to lead an army and he's going to win such and such battles. You're not doing any of this stuff. You're sitting here in a prison cell in Gallipoli. And, you know, and Sabatai is not very happy about this. And Nehemiah starts to say, I don't think you're really the Messiah. Or if you are, you're just like a second Messiah. You're just like the spiritual Messiah. But first, there has to be a martial military Messiah who's actually going to win battles and establish the kingdom. And that's me. <laughs> and that's me, Nehemiah. Okay, okay. So, you know, it's like the three Christs of Ypsilanti. It's like these two messianic pretenders fight reportedly all day and all night. And Nehemiah gets super upset and he runs out and he goes to the Turkish guards and he says, that's it. I'm taking the turban, meaning I'm converting to Islam. Oh. Why was he doing this? Was it some kind of revenge of like sticking it to Sabatai? Was he so disillusioned by this fight with Sabatai that he gave up on Judaism? Don't know what was going on there. But he basically says, I'm taking the turban. And maybe he did it because he felt he needed protection from the Turkish authorities. Maybe he'd be in danger if people knew that he opposed Sabatai. He journeys back to Poland. And in Poland, he returns back to Judaism. Right? But he remains a skeptic who does not subscribe to Sabatai. It seems this incident with Nehemiah somehow like flipped the switch for the Turkish authorities. They were like, this is getting way out of hand. Maybe they were afraid that there were going to fights were going to break out, that maybe there would be competing claimants. Maybe there would be some kind of civil war among the Jewish community. Or maybe they thought, hey, this Sabatai thing, it's really getting these Jews real worked up. Maybe we can somehow play this into getting the Jews to convert to Islam. So this is where someone in the imperial court says, all right, we've got to to end this. And they send for Sabatai. They take him out of the prison in Gallipoli and they take him to Adrianople, which is like a smaller, somewhat more remote city. And they, well, well, actually before Adrianople, I should say, they take him 
to the sultan's privy council, like the highest ruling body short of the sultan himself, right? The grand vizier is there, the, the grand mufti, the sultan's chaplain, these like major guys are having their, they're like governing the empire. And apparently they bring Sabatai forth and they question him a little bit. They make him an ultimatum. They say, you can be tortured and killed or you can convert to Islam. And he says, I'll convert to Islam. (laughs) So he takes the turban and he's renamed. He's given a Turkish Islamic name. The Sultan's chaplain sort of takes him on as like a student, like a disciple to teach him the Islamic faith. And by all evidences, it seems that he, he embraces Islam and he abjures Judaism. He sends for his wife. So his wife, Sarah, who's a whole other story, like his marriages are this whole mess. But so he'd been married and divorced twice and apparently never consummated those early marriages. But then he had a third wife, Sarah, with whom he had a more lasting relationship. She had a reputation as promiscuous. She was understood to be not a virgin. And when Sabatai married her, it was kind of another one of his strange acts. Like, why would he choose this woman? who had like the worst reputation in Smyrna. But they have a relationship. He sees her as important and kind of a holy figure like himself. And after he apostatizes by converting to Islam, he sends for her and she also converts and is renamed Fatima, I believe. The imperial government gives him a house in Adrianople, which was a kind of important, smaller, fortified city in Thrace, in what's now Turkey. He is given a pension, he's given money, and he's sort of treated as an important personage with a certain level of respect and honor in the Ottoman regime, probably because he was seen as an example for Jews to follow. That, you know, you see when you're really enlightened and you're really spiritually reaching the highest level, you should become a Muslim. So if you've reached level 10 of Judaism. Right, it's Islam. (laughs) So that's the message that they see him as sending. So he apostatizes in mid-September 1666, and the news gets out. And it's very complicated because the word gets out to these different communities over the next several weeks. People find out about it in Greece, in Italy, in Germany, in Egypt, in Yemen— And then news is cut off because a war breaks out between the Ottoman Empire and some European states. So then the information shuts off. So it's like all people heard is Sabatai converted. He took the turban. And there was this wave of shock, of just shock and horror. And people had to figure out what what happened. How could this be true? How could our Messiah have betrayed the faith? A lot of people were just completely disillusioned and said, okay, Sabatai is not the Messiah. We were wrong. And they just go into disappointment and dejection. Some people who had rejected Sabatai already gloated and were like, ha ha ha, see, told you so. Some of them were much more diplomatic. There were a lot of rabbis who said, I didn't believe. Some people did believe. We're just not going to talk about it. Let's just forget the whole incident. Let's forget this whole crazy movement that happened because we shouldn't fight about it right? So there's this mixed reaction. But there were many believers who didn't accept it or who tried to explain it. So there were some believers who said, well, he didn't really convert. It was just an illusion or it was a trick. He just pretended to convert as a way of of tricking the Ottoman authorities and gaining influence. He's sort of going in behind enemy lines. Some people compare this to people like, say, Queen Esther. That's a very common comparison. A lot of people say, well, he's doing like Queen Esther, where she hid her Judaism in the emperor's court until the right moment when she could step forward and save the Jewish people. 
So some people say that's what Sabatai is doing. It's not a real conversion. He's just, it's strategic. But, but for one thing, it's stuck, right? He remained Muslim for a number of years. So over the course of autumn, winter of the following year, 1667, a lot of these followers and believers, the gears start to turn. And they find out Nathan of Gaza is still with him. Nathan of Gaza still believes he's the Messiah. Is Nathan of Gaza in Turkey with him? No. He went on a couple of trips where he visited Turkey. He never went and visited Sabatai in Gallipoli. He stays back in Gaza or he travels around to some other towns in the area. But he remains steadfast in the faith. People's gears start to turn and they come up with new ways of understanding what just happened. And they interpret it in light of Nathan's mystical teachings. The critical thing that Nathan had argued about Sabatai is he said, Sabatai is doing these weird taboo-breaking acts, marrying this disreputable woman, eating non-kosher food, violating fasts. He's doing it because this is the final stage of the redemption. And he went back to Kabbalah and the idea of tikkun, where people believed that they had to gather the sparks. So this is a Lurianic Kabbalistic idea, sort of newer Kabbalistic idea from the 1600s that the world has been shattered and broken and there are sort of divine sparks that are scattered around even among dirty or evil things. And Jews, through their acts of tikkun, regather those things. It's like piecing the vessels back together is the, is the metaphor, right? Like a broken pot and piecing it back together. So Nathan argues, well, Jews have been doing that and that's great, but they're only doing that in the kind of safe realms, the realms that are somewhat closer to God. Oh, so who's going to gather the sparks in the ugly places? Right, the worst, the most fallen, the most evil places. Nathan calls this the Kalipa, the sort of realm of demons. And he has this notion that there are sort of demonic dragons and snakes and these evil creatures that control the lower realm, the hellish realm. And that's, you know, all this nasty stuff like taboo sex and non-kosher food and violence and suffering and the infidels, the Gentiles. So if you look at it in that light, the conversion makes sense. You say, aha, now he is committing the ultimate, the worst taboo, the ultimate sin of leaving the faith and going into the darkness, the realm of the Gentiles. But he's doing it as part of this process of redeeming it. And in a way, he's taking on this burden, the worst burden of being alienated from God and alienated from Israel. He's going into that darkest, worst realm, right to the belly of the beast, in order to redeem it back. Presumably, once he's redeemed it, he'll come back and be a Jew again or something like that. Right, right. And, and it's harder to say exactly what Sabatai himself was thinking. But it does seem that this is what Nathan thought pretty quickly. And this is what a lot of Sabatai's followers thought is he is going into this dark realm in order to redeem it. Sabatai, it seems, started to think some things a little differently from Nathan. There started to be a divergence between the two of them, where Nathan was saying he's going into the evil realm to destroy it and defeat it. Right, And the Ottoman Empire is this sort of great force of evil and darkness, and he's going to break it apart from within and free all that is good and holy to partake in the new paradise. Whereas Sabatai is living among Muslims and among Turks. He's friends with the emperor. The sultan likes him. The sultan is like a, is like a patron. And Sabatai is like, well, sultan's not a bad guy. I've got all these nice people around doing nice things for me. And he starts to make a different argument. 
And he has a, a, a new wave of visions and illuminations in 1668, which he says begin in Passover, 1668, where he's living in Adrianople, presumably as a Turk, but he's still practicing all kinds of Jewish practices. He's like kind of become a closet Jew, a lot like the, the Moranos and Conversos back in Spain. He's doing the same thing where publicly he's appearing as a Muslim, but he's still practicing Judaism privately. He's attracting some Muslim friends and sort of drawing them into his circle and having them engage in these Jewish practices too. So on Passover 1668, he has this new vision, which tells him there are good people, there are good souls among the Gentiles, and you converted, your apostasy was so that you could redeem them too. You could bring them to Judaism or to whatever this thing is you're doing, whatever this weird hybrid of Judaism and Islam that you're doing, you need to bring Gentiles to that. And that is their pathway to then also be redeemed along with the Jews. So that's his explanation that he develops for why his apostasy makes sense. And it seems like late 1660s, early 1670s, he's kind of cobbling together this alternate belief system where it's like Judaism, but there's like a legitimate place for Islam too, that Islam can also be part of this kind of new reformed spiritualized Judaism of the Messianic age, and that all people will be redeemed by this, you could kind of say new faith. They don't necessarily call it that, but it's like he's putting something together that he believes can be the sort of universal redemption for all people not just Jews. And some of his followers, there's no clear consensus, but a lot of these followers who had accepted the apostasy as part of his messianic mission, they start to kind of develop these new belief systems that are like a, a, a kind of combination or some, some sort of mix and match of Nathan's ideas and sabotage, where it's like, yeah, apostatizing can be good, if you're the right person and you're ready to do it spiritually, maybe you should apostatize because that's how you will help to redeem everything and everybody in anticipation of Sabatai then being able to assume rulership and leadership of the world and lead the world into the millennium of peace. So this is happening towards the end of his life, right, in the 1670s. Yeah. And, and this is happening in the Ottoman Empire. We have this mm -hmm. kind of Creole faith forming. Yeah. Are, are there bones to be thrown to the lowbrow listeners, <laughs> namely me? Sabotage converted, and we're gathering up the sparks from these really awful places. Is this mm -hmm. where you start seeing people in, in the general diaspora having orgies or really breaking taboos without specific direction from Sabotage? Well, yes. I mean, it was a very slow, gradual development. And it seems like some of the seeds were were sown during Sabatai's own life. So he died in 1676. So by the time he dies, there are stories going around, which may be true, that he did some things that were taboo. Like, for example, he met privately with his ex-wives, right? These women that he had granted a get and divorced. And that was considered highly taboo, right? You were supposed to stay away from them, especially not meet with them privately in order to avoid any possibility of, you know, polygamy, basically, <laughs> of maintaining polygamous relationships. But he does that. And he does it even before his apostasy. He, this is one of the weird taboo acts he commits. 
And then after the apostasy in the 1670s, he starts to kind of say some things and hint some things that maybe it's okay to have more than one spouse. And maybe that we, maybe that taboo is one of the ones that has been overturned. Uh, maybe the incest taboo should be overturned. Maybe. Really, the incest taboo. Yeah. So that is one of the central things that comes up is, you know, that is one of the deepest, you know, uh, most powerful taboos in most societies, including in Judaism, right? And so probably it appeals to Sabbatai of like, if I can convince people to do the incest, that is like the ultimate statement that that which was forbidden is now commanded, right? And it's not because he wanted to do incest with any particular person in his family. There's no indication of that. But he saw it as this powerfully symbolic act, We know that by the time he died, by 1675-76, the sort of hardcore Sabbateans had hived off and formed, you could say, a kind of sectarian community where they were meeting and saying certain prayers and reciting certain songs, some of which they knew Sabbatai loved, and they were maintaining this kind of faith in Sabbatai among themselves and maintaining this idea that he had just sort of temporarily withdrawn into a private world, but would eventually return, you know, a lot like the early Christians believed, or like Shiite Muslims believe about the hidden imam, you know, he's just in a state of occultation, he's hidden from us, but he will come back. I guess it parallels the earlier a depressive state that he was in in Smyrna before he became more manic, I guess you could say, yeah, or, or more yeah. inspired. Right, right. It, this is one of the ways in which his personality happened to lend itself so well to this kind of messianic movement. If you could say, well, there are periods when he is under the power of the demonic forces, of the Kalipot, and he he has to suffer through those periods in order to then later have freedom and insight and illumination. So people were kind of, you could say, primed to accept and cope with this period of occultation. But don't worry, he's going to come back. By 1676, there's like this sectarian group that's formed. And you can see, particularly in certain places like Livorno in Italy, there are sizable groups that will meet in the homes of rabbis or in the homes of wealthy laymen who patronize the synagogue and who will give them this kind of bit of protection to keep meeting and keep sharing this, you could say, kind of gospel of Sabbatai. It seems in those groups, over time, little by little, that's where these doctrines developed and evolved, where people would say, you know, we really have to do the most taboo stuff. We have to violate Yom Kippur. We have to violate the incest taboo. We have to violate the adultery taboo and have taboo sex. And there is one little story, if I remember right, Gershom Sholem cites there's one report from, uh, you know, a, a seeker from Europe who went and visited Sabatai in Albania. So in the last few years of his life, he was banished to uh, just a small village outpost in Albania. He was seen as too dangerous because he was backsliding to Judaism. You know, he was practicing Jewish practices still when he was supposed to be a Muslim, which was a capital offense. He could have been executed. But again, rather than make him a martyr, the Ottomans sent him to this little village in Albania. And a visitor who went there said, well, I like walked in and he was like surrounded by wine and women. (laughs) Wow. It's like, oh. 
okay, so something is going on here where like he probably was about to engage in some kind of group sex or something or some kind of sexual taboo. And he was drinking wine, which was also against Islam. So he was breaking all the rules at once, but in a, in, again, in an intentional ritualistic way that his followers could see, right? It was part of his message. You keep on bringing up this point that it's about performing some sort of intentional ritual that has some sort of metaphysical meaning. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like you're a little bit of an apologist for Sabbatai. Do you think that he's actually sincere, that there is a component, maybe a majority of the, of the reason why he's doing this is just really purely sincere faith in himself? Or is there like titillation? Is that part of it? I think he 100% believed it. 100%. If you look at the documents and the evidence, there can be no doubt. And again, he did not come up with the idea that he was the Messiah. Maybe there are possible hints that he suggested it or toyed with the idea, but he did not go around saying, I'm the Messiah. And even often when he was questioned, he would sometimes deny it, particularly when Gentiles questioned him, he would deny it. He was convinced by it. He was convinced by Nathan and he was convinced by his own followers. He was getting high on his own supply. And he was surrounded by people who wanted to believe it and constantly affirmed it and constantly behaved as if he was the Messiah. And by the end of his life, there's no doubt he completely believed it. And he believed that all of these actions meant something spiritually. Again, like when it comes to the incest taboo, he didn't have anything particularly to gain from that. I mean, he had a sister in Smyrna, but there's no indication he had any interest sexually in anyone in his family. But he believed it was part of his mission. It was part of his mission. And he was completely committed to this mission. And if you think about the things that he did, it's like reading from a printed Torah instead of a Torah scroll and like eating kidney fat from a lamb. It's like, this was not very sexy stuff. This was not fun. It was not fun stuff that he was indulging in. These were symbolic actions that were conveying. And, you know, and you can say, well, maybe he was attracted to these things. And I do think it's likely that he and his followers were attracted to a lot of these taboo acts because it was a way of kind of psychologically rebelling against the repression. You know, if like you're living your life and you're surrounded by these taboos all the time and you feel this huge weight on your shoulders, you have to eat the right food and wear the right clothes and observe all the holidays and marry the right person. I think people felt a huge burden that they were having to adhere to Jewish law even as they were persecuted and suffering. I think there was a kind of psychological release of being able to suddenly say, all bets are off. Do the things that are forbidden. But he was not a faker. <laughs> he was definitely not a faker. And you would say the same thing for the people that continued to be supportive of him towards the end of his life. They weren't faking either. These groups of no. believers all over the diaspora, they weren't fakers. No, no. They totally believed it. They totally believed it. The apostasy kind of turned the tables in a lot of ways. Because if you had walked around in a Jewish community in the summer of 1666, most people were Sabbatean. And if you didn't believe, you were in the minority. And you were even at risk in some ways. After the apostasy, the believers had a lot of egg on their faces. And it was embarrassing. And some of them were pressured to do penance. Some were excommunicated. I mean, it was really crushing. So after that point, it was more burdensome to continue to adhere to the faith in Sabbatai. But people continued to adhere because it made sense to them spiritually, theologically, or just because they were in denial and they just wanted to cling to this inspiring moment, this moment of excitement that had kind of broken out that they, they weren't willing to let go of that. 
let's say it's like 1680, 1690, 10, 15, 20 years after Sabatai is dead, and I'm in a small town in Europe, in Germany or something like that, what percentage of people would still be kind of into Sabatai? Would would you notice it walking around the town or would you notice it in the synagogue? Yeah, I don't know as much about that in detail. And it's interesting, Gershom Sholem basically cuts off his book around 1680 and he doesn't get into the later evolution. And I think part of why he did that, you know, he wrote this massive book in 1973 and he wrote it for a Jewish audience. And he presumed that people would know the stories. The people would know, oh my God, (laughs) Sabbateanism is this weird strain of Judaism that we don't like to talk about and we like to kind of brush under the rug. So he doesn't get into that in detail, but there are certain things that are commonly known. For instance, if you had gone around a synagogue, if you'd gone to worship service in Poland or Hungary or Czechoslovakia, really any time through, even through the 1700s, you would have known certain people were Sabbatean, and you probably would have seen a small group of Jewish worshipers who conformed to all the normal rules and procedures of Jewish worship, who, you know, were just perfectly straightforward halachic Jews, who at the end of a service would withdraw, maybe to a side room, maybe to a corner, maybe to somebody's house, and they would say further prayers and probably perform songs, maybe dance, in honor of Sabbatai kind of keeping the faith going. This is part of the ground where then, you know, Hasidism arose. So a lot of the people who who promoted Sabbateanism, who kept the message going, who kept preaching it, were persons that you were called Baal Shem, right, uh, Lord of the Name, which was kind of like a healer. Some of them were doctors of some sort. They were mystical healers. And it was just known that a lot of them you know, adhered to Sabbatai. The Baal Shem Tov was just one of these Baal Shem from Poland, mid-18th century, who started the Hasidic movement. You know, he didn't go around saying, I'm still Sabbatean, but it was clear that there was a connection there from this sort of mystical and expressive, emotional, musical worship style right into the Hasidic movement. There also was another offshoot, which maybe is part of what you're thinking of, too, of the Jacob Frank movement. I've heard of this Jacob Frank movement that's known for its, like, sexual debauchery. Yeah, I don't know a lot about that in detail, but I think that a lot of the bad name and bad associations with Sabbatai Tzvi are kind of back-projected from the Jacob Frank movement. Which was in the 1700s. Right, or early 1700s. I think it started 1720s, where you had this, like, Sabbatean preacher— one like many, who sort of worked through the whole theology and philosophy of the apostasy and said, well, all right, the proper thing to do is for all of us to do all the bad stuff, do everything that's forbidden. And that means sexual debauchery. I mean, that's probably one small part of what they did. It's not like the centerpiece of the whole thing. But that's what our listeners <laughs> want to know. Sam. Yeah, yeah. So they probably, you know, had extramarital sex, had group sex, all the forbidden stuff, and converted to Roman Catholicism. Really? Okay. Yeah, that was where it ultimately went, is and now we will apostatize and join the Roman Catholic Church, but maintain our secret Sabbatean Judaism, just as Sabbatai did after converting to Islam. In addition to that, you should know, very interesting outcome of the movement also was in Turkish and Greek lands, particularly in Salonika, which was a a Greek city with a big Jewish community. A large group of Jews 
converted to Islam, you know, followed Sabatai's example and converted, but maintained their secret private Jewish identity. So, you know, fo- again, followed Sabatai's example with this idea that eventually Sabatai will return and redeem the whole world, Jews and Muslims alike. They become known as the Dunmeh, that's the Turkish name for them. And they persist as like an underground, secretive, crypto-Jewish sect. Into the 20th century. Yeah, right into the 20th century. The funny thing is a lot of them become prominent, successful statesmen. A lot of the prominent leading reformers in the Ottoman Empire in the 1800s are from the Donmeh. Gershom Sholem also points out a lot of the leading Jewish reformers in Europe in the Haskalah and the Jewish Enlightenment also come from Sabatean families and Sabatean communities. I don't know, like it's a very strange thread of connection and it's it's very hard to explain. Sam, you've taken us through the history of the life of Sabatai and his compatriots like Nathan of Gaza. We've talked a little bit about what was the environment that allowed this to kind of develop and grow. We've talked about the repercussions of Sabbateanism, effects on Hasidic Judaism, Haskalah movement, Frankism, the Donmei. Hopefully listeners can better see how it fits into the history of rabbinic Judaism. What are some of your big takeaways? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's all an amazing story. I mean, I think the drama and the tragedy of it just really come across powerfully when you read about it and you read how it unfolded stage by stage. I mean, these incredible scenes of him just receiving this stream of dignified visitors in his prison cell in Gallipoli and like the incredible ironies of it, of this, in a lot of ways, just a nobody, a very, you know, very troubled, but otherwise pretty ordinary fellow becoming the focus of this enormous wave of passion and excitement. I think that the main thing that really strikes you when you look at the whole story, and Gershom Sholem kind of says the same thing a couple times, is like, it's incredible that all these different Jews in all these different communities, in all these different countries, all reacted in unison. I mean, it was like almost unanimous. Yemen, Persia, Kurdistan, Morocco, Holland, Germany, Everybody, everybody was on the same page. Everybody was like, this is it. We're ready. Sabotai is our leader. It shows you, I think, this kind of tragedy that to think that it was possible for all these Jews to act in concert in this way and to to focus on this one idea and this one hope. And it was for naught, you know, and it, and it just kind of unraveled. That's not to say it didn't have effects and it didn't change how people thought about Judaism, but it certainly didn't lead to some grand redemption. I mean, if anything, it led to a lot of people losing some money when they sold their houses to go to Jerusalem and then had to buy them back (laughs) after the whole thing fizzled. You know, the disappointment is huge, but at the same time, it's like an inspiration when you really get the full story of what people were doing and why and how it made sense to them. It's also inspiring to think of all these Jews acting together and sharing this kind of great shared feeling. The skeleton in the Jewish closet might not need to be a skeleton. It could be something very inspiring that we should take out of the closet and take a look at a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on what you choose to take from it and how much you try to understand the good in it, even though (laughs) it is this 
really tragic episode. The next episode, we're going to have Sam, you're going to be back on, Hava's going to join us, and we're going to talk about that skeleton and actually make some meaning from it and drosh what you've told us. I think that'll be fun. Thank you for bringing the passion to the story of Sabotai, something that can sometimes be hard for someone who isn't a historian or who doesn't have time themselves to reconstruct and make sense of. Thanks for proposing it. It's a really awesome topic. Thank you, listeners. Have a good week. Shavua Tov. Shavua